my interest was not about guilt or innocence or things of that nature, right? But was about what happens when one is incarcerated and how the, the sort of ontological switch that takes place. And it took place for Marley in a profound way. From that experience, he understood the state completely differently and probably ways that the state did not intend to happen either, right? You are listening to PEN America's Works of Justice podcast. I am Malcolm Tariq, Senior Manager of Editorial Projects for Prison and Justice Writing, which for over 50 years has amplified the voices of thousands of writers who are creating while incarcerated. Works of Justice spotlights key figures, writers, and artists who are reshaping the conversation on mass incarceration, advocacy, and justice in the United States. In this episode, I speak with Damien M. Sojourner about his recent book, Joy and Pain, A Story of Black Life and Liberation in Five Albums. We are joined by Damien M. Sojourner, Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of California, Irvine. And Damien's joining us to talk about his recent book, Joy and Pain, A Story of Black Life and Liberation in Five Albums. Damien, thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you so much, Malcolm, for the invitation. It's a pleasure uh, to be with you. I don't know how I came across your book, but I did. I love works that are modeled after albums for some reason. So once I got it and it was an A side and a B side to each chapter, something I had never really seen before. I just thought it was very like inventive. I definitely need a second read to get all of the nuances that you're talking about. But the gift is that we get to have a conversation and then I get a second read being more informed about the information. So thank thank you. you. I appreciate that. Thank you. Maybe we can just get started by talking a bit about your inspiration for writing the book. You talk about that a bit in the introduction and in the first first chapter, I believe. But if you can give listeners a bit about how this book came to be. Okay. So there were several different inspirations for the book. Over roughly the past 10 years, I've had several conversations with Yusuf Omowali and Michelle Wellsling, who are uh, the stewards of the Southern California Library. And one of the things that we've been talking about over that duration is mapping out, framing, naming slash describing what is this sort of massive complex that's given many names. Some people call it the prison industrial complex. Some people call it the carceral state. Um, some people refer to it just as prisons. <clears throat> the naming of this of this sort of site is much more than just the physical apparatus of the prison itself. There's um, a lot more to it in, with regards to how it has been developed, formed. And that's very important in terms of developing strategies to dismantle the structure itself. So to that end, a lot of what I have learned from organizers and from people who live immediately in the neighborhood where the Southern California Library is, which is a centerpiece of the book, is that it's relational. That is, the the carceral state is built upon a series of relationships, and those relationships go a long way to define how both people engage with each other, but then also importantly, how state structures inform and to a certain extent dictate how people live. Oftentimes, when people read texts with regards to prisons, you sort of are either right in the prison or it's a book about sort of like the law, 
with, with regards to prisons. And I think those books have been very well done are and are informational with regards to the nature of prisons themselves or, or the nature of the law. My focus in this text was to look at the ways in which the carceral state bleeds into many, many structures of state life and state governance. So to that end, there's a focus on education, there's a focus on healthcare, a focus on nonprofit sector, a focus on employment as well. And so that sort of provides like an, an overview of the intentionality of the book. The framing of it in terms of the album uh, was because, I'm, A, I'm a huge fan of music. Uh, and I mean, that doesn't necessarily make me unique. I think every Black person I know loves music. Um, and so, I, and, and I mentioned that because so much of my engagement with the Southern California Library, music was always present. Uh, so there wasn't ever a time where you walk into the, the space of the library and music wasn't on. And that music ranged from Frankie Beverly and Mays to John Coltrane, Aretha Franklin. Um, I mean, the, it, it's just a, a long list of who, who was being played. And several of the people in the community who lived right around the, the library also were musicians and huge fans of music or were taking music lessons either through an organization that was external to school or from family members, music was just always present. And so music became a foundation to understand both how Black people live their life, but importantly, it's a cultural marker of how Black people organize as well. These, these two points sort of go together is Octavia Butler's parable series was very inspirational in terms of the, the, the framing of the text. In that series, Butler lays out this dystopic past, which actually she wrote it in 1990s, um, but that dystopic past would be happening right now because it, it was set in the 2020s. And the book is more or less laid out with a narrative side that, that sort of told you what was going on in that moment, and then a vision side, which was a, a planning for the future, what was to be called Earthseed. And that was uh, helpful for me to understand how Black people were living, which is that there was a narrative understanding of what life was like within a state where the dominant mode of governance was the logics of carcerality. However, that was not how Black people saw their lives. And they uh, imagined and envisioned a life that was absent of that. Thus, you have sort of like this A side and the, the B side. And then also related is We Charge Genocide, which was a document that was formed by the Civil Rights Congress and edited by William Patterson and essentially charged the United States with genocide and was seeking to bring those documents forth to the United Nations and demonstrated the multifaceted ways in which the United States systematically was attempting to perform genocidal processes against Black people in the U.S. And that document, if you get a chance to read it, outlines the ways in which Black life was under constant threat with regards to healthcare, employment, lynching, policing, uh, housing. And so that document became very important also for, for understanding how to frame the current moment by using a model from the past. Very rich sources and, and inspirations you're drawing from going from music to Octavia Butler to Recharge Genocide, uh, which I haven't read in, okay, I was going to say a decade, but that's not true. It's probably been like <laughs> five to eight years. Um, but that's that's something that I didn't pick up on when 
reading, but I guess because I haven't accessed that text in a while, but now that you say it, I do kind of like see that in here. And I haven't read the parable series. I know, don't let other people know that. I'm going to get on it. <laughs> I've been told I should, and I will. Um, but while you were talking about the A side and the B side, I just looked at the cover of the book and it does kind of look like an album cover. Like it looks like right. a Stevie Wonder album to me. And I think that's what drew me to it in addition to, to the subject matter. Um, so thank you for giving us that context. So let's go to the library since that is the centerpiece. You're from the Los Angeles area, correct? Right, yeah. So I uh, was born in LA, then sort of moved around, grew up. Uh, for the uh, formative part of my life in Carson, California, which is just south of LA, sort of snuggled in between Compton and Long Beach, but have family members all throughout LA. So it's it's not uncommon for a lot of folks to travel all throughout the urban sprawl that is LA. For people who are not from LA, it looks like just one big old giant same mm -hmm. place. <laughs> um, but, but there's a, a, a series of smaller cities that sort of all are intimately linked together usually by matters of family and or work. And did you grow up around the library? Yeah, so I, as I said in the book, I probably passed the library like 500 times. And that's not mm -hmm. being hyperbolic at all. Mm -hmm. And just had no idea what was inside that building. That's something that's also typical of Los Angeles is that there's so many hidden gems throughout the city. And if you don't know, uh, it's kind of hard to know unless they've been gone and then someone tells you about it. But yeah, and then have family members who lived right down the street from there. There's a relatively famous high school called Manual Arts High School, which is right down the street from the library. Yeah, just didn't know. Now, I had read about the library before, but didn't know that the physical building was there probably in until the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. And then what brought you there? You were teaching a class? Yeah, so I was uh, invited by the director, Yusuf Omawali, um, to take part in a planning session. This was coming on the heels of a reader um, that was formed about Skid Row in LA, in which the library was a partner, along with uh, LA Can, another organization that's based in LA. After that, I was invited by Yusuf and Michelle to take part of a planning session. They were sort of building up a program concerning Black masculinity, but they didn't want it done in that typical way this is around 2008, 2009, around a particular type of masculine performance that was sort of respectability politics and to demonstrate how men should be men. That was the prototype that was out there and they went through something completely different. We worked on uh, a few ideas and then relationship developed from there uh, to where about a year later, they had asked me to take part in a political education class that took part over the summer. And I've had a relationship with them ever since. So that's where you met Marley, one of the main, or the main subject of the book, um, teaching that class. And how old was Marley when you met him? Marley was 14, I think, when, when, when we first mm -hmm. met. And, and I should say, I, I left this out, to say that Southern California Library is not your typical library. It houses several archives ranging from the Los Angeles chapter of the Black Panther Party to the International Oil Workers Union to old archives of Ebony, Jet, um, famous Black newspapers such as the California Eagle. And it just it, it's a rich, rich source of information. And over the past 15 years, Michelle and Yusuf 
have really made a concerted effort to document the lives of those people who live immediately around the, the library as well. Th that was in part how I met Marley, because Marley, even at 14, was extremely charismatic and seemed like he knew everybody in the neighborhood from two-year-olds up to 72 years old. Um, Marley just knew everybody and had his pulse on uh, sort of what was happening. And then soon found out that there was several people very similar to Marley who had sort of stories of what Black life was about, but then also had ideas and solutions as how to, to move forward. And it was through the library that I was able to engage with a lot of folks uh, who live right around there. And so you describe what well, it is in ethnography. Um, can you tell our readers a bit about what that is and, and how you work in that realm and your process for writing about Marley and the library and the staff of the library, because basically throughout these five chapters, a story unfolds. And like you're saying, the part, the the side A and the side B, it's that there's story and then there's more of like the history, like the more, right, um, right. you know, yeah. And so if you could talk more about yeah. how you work in ethnography and, and how you went about doing that for a community that you are are from or like adjacent from, and with these people who you were actively working with, uh, this place that you care about, how did you go about doing that? Sure, yeah, I think that, that's a great question. Um, so I tried as best I could with it being ethnography to remove myself from the process. Now that's impossible, right? Of course, because I'm the one that ate us writing it and it's, it's told from, from my vantage point. Um, but I really didn't necessarily wanna have my ideas per se come through as much. And so one of the ways in which I tried to, to do that was to document these conversations that, that Marley and I had. So much of the A side is understanding me posing a series of questions to Marley or Marley just talking because I could ask one question and Marley would just talk, like just, you know, just go on and talk. And he had a lot of ideas about a lot of different subjects. This happened over a, a series of years and once again, anybody who's been to Southern California knows that the best way slash primary way to get around the city is via car. And that is because the public transportation infrastructure is just abysmal. Although, you know, lots of people get, get around by bus, it just takes so long just because it's not, it's not sort of up to date, quote, quote unquote. Um, and so a lot of the, the A side, the, the ethnography is literally Marley and I driving around Southern California, going from place to place, to meeting to, you know, linking up to have tea or something like that, or going to the library. Um, and us in conversation about a variety of topics ranging um, and dealing with sort of Black existence within the confines of this sort of carceral governance model. The B side is archival documents that are taken from the library that were in that informed the political education classes that were being had. So what you have is on the A side, sort of like this narrative of Marley and his peers as they're living, developing, organizing against what they see as particular forms of injustice, and then also just living, uh, living life. And then on the B side, you see sort of like these models from the LA chapter of the Black Panther Party, from the Urban Policy Research Institute, of how Black organizations um, had done similar things from 
essentially post Watts Rebellion 1965, leading up to 1992, to the uh, LA Rebellion. I knew some of, of that history about Los Angeles, the Black Panther Party, how gang culture, in quotation marks, got started kind of. So reading this just kind of like put a lot of the pieces together because the chapters I realized halfway through, I'm like, oh, this chapter is about like kind of like food or about housing. And with, with Marley as this interlocutor who's walking us through the community aspect, but also on a citywide kind of scale. At times it was hard to believe that Marley was a teenager. I would be reading like, are you sure that this is like a child? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> it's like, surely you're making this up. But then you, there are these sentences where you'll be like, oh, I was very surprised that he was talking like this. You would remind me as I was reading, like, and that reassured me. I was like, okay, this actually is a child. But doing what I would call deep work for someone of that age, I was not involved. Well, I guess I also didn't live in a city like Los Angeles at that age, but I, we, me and my cousins, classmates, we were not that politically aligned at that age. Um, and so I think just to bring Marley in a bit because, because he's such an important figure in the book and because um, I believe like you got him to like guest lecture in your class once or twice. Yeah, it, it was in um, a professor, uh, Clyde Woods. Okay. Uh, who was oh. professor at, at UC Santa Barbara at the time. It, it was oh, okay. in uh, his class, yeah. What year was that? That was in 2010, that was right, because Clyde passed in 2011. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. it must have been around 2010. Yeah. That was right, yeah, yeah. I saw that Verso um, reissued his book and I need to get my copy because I know that was like an underground classic. Yes, um, after yes. Passing, and so I was happy to see that back in print. Um, uh, that was an aside. So, <laughs> <laughs> if, um, so yeah, could you talk a bit about Marley's work? I kind of want to call him an organizer. I don't know if you would, but his organization, Brim, and about things that he was doing in his community that really caught your eye. It's kind of like this book would not exist if it if you hadn't met Marley, which you kind of say in the book. But so if you could talk about his work. Yeah, so I, I agree with you. I think the book definitely would not have happened. Um, and I think, you know, what, what I learned a lot is that Marley was also indicative of sort of like the spirit slash ethos that pervade throughout the neighborhood. So for, for those who know who Brim, what Brim is, Brim is one of the oldest blood sets. And as Marley described to me, uh, as it was told to him, Brim was an organization uh, that really its inception was about revolution um, and about changing uh, society uh, as, as it was formed. And he really attempted to carry that ethos forward Oftentimes, the way that gang culture now is described, to your point, Malcolm, is just about sort of like this nihilistic violence um, and with Black people killing each other, and, and that's the end. And, and it's been glorified that way through several mediums. Uh, but when you actually talk to people who are involved in, in organizations and organizing, you find a completely different reality. One of the things that I attempted to do in the book, and hopefully it, it conveys, is to make the illegibility of what it means to be a Black organizer outside of the formal sort of edicts of the state, i.e. through quote-unquote gang culture or whatever. Although you know, I'm not, I, I also don't try to write within that fabric of like, oh, this is gang life, because that has its own set of 
problems. Um, but just to demonstrate what it means to be an organizer who, who not necessarily is read by the state as such, but is very much understood within the neighborhood and community to be just that. Um, so a major uh, sort of aspect of it is sort of getting into the mundane. So there's a, a section in there about Marley and his comrades organizing a barbecue for people in the neighborhood to come out together. And then there was a planning session after that and sort of went into uh, what occurred at that planning session. And it was that that part wasn't um, at all to try to sort of depict that as being unusual, but rather saying that this is a typical understanding of what happens amongst Black people as they're organizing. Uh, very often, we, we have a, a formulaic understanding that Black organizing has to look a certain way. You know, it's been my experience that, that that's purely not the case, like there's several different ways of organizing and people do it in, in, in different formats, but oftentimes those formats are made illegible and, and not common sense. To your point about describing how gang culture is glorified in the media and how it's presented to us, what I what I like about your book, and it took me back to my undergraduate days when I, I, went, I had this class at 8.30 a.m., earliest class, and it was about juvenile delinquency, I think. I remember watching that documentary and just sitting in the back of the class like, I've just been fed lies through like movies and, you know, everywhere, and that comes early in the book. I think maybe the first chapter when you're pointing out how the government or how like city officials were making these policies and like initiatives that really put that label on Black youth. And that was not what the Black people there were doing. This is the first time that I had seen it in your book is that you were pointing out how they would use certain words and then the word would stick throughout the policies or throughout the changes and, and history. And so in addition to talking about what a blessed set is if if you could just say a bit more about how like how the government did that right. um, how the government's labeled gangs as gangs sure yeah that, that's a great question um so w with regards to la essentially you know the f upon the first time that you have a massive wave of black people coming into southern california during the 1940s and 50s is when this sort of gang threat is identified by city officials. In particular, uh, what was happening was that you had formations of racial terror, which would be an unleashed upon Black people who were living in deplorable situations, forced to live in, in, in those conditions when they moved. And then as they attempted to sort of spread out um, from where they were being forced to live, you saw both legal forms of that through through redlining, which has sort of been famously documented um, at, at this point where Black people couldn't move into certain areas, and then uh, physically terroristic forms of that where houses were being firebombed and kids were being attacked at certain schools. Um, they had sort of like these, these famous white terror groups such as the spook hunters who would go around trying to intimidate uh, Black people. And so out of that, Black folks began to form their own organizations. Some of the first ones being like the Slossons, the Gladiators, Dodge City, these organizations that formed in the 60s. And they were very instrumental during 1965 of organizing Black people to literally kick out both the police from Black Los Angeles and then also to kick out these Black terror groups uh, as well. 
And what you see uh, with both the Bloods and the Crips is the, the legacy of that. So uh, prior to there being this sort of term blood, Brim actually predates that term blood. There's a much longer history to that, but for, for the sake of, of time, um, the understanding of Brim sort of uh, bleeds into blood. Brim sets are understood to be also blood sets, but that history is a little bit more tangled than that. But for the sake of the case with Marley, is that Marley very much understood um, himself and Brim to be a part of that legacy of Black radical movement against the state and white terror uh, as well. Um, and many of his peers and comrades did also. And the the key thing is, and this is, dates back to the 1960s, is you can see, to your point, the, the labeling both through the official documentation of policy briefs and memos, but then also the sort of propaganda swings of like the, the LA Times of labeling black organizations uh, such as Negro hate groups. And then that later changes uh, to gangs and then identifying like this gang problem and not at all trying to wrestle with the actual quote unquote problems, which were all over the place. And so the focus became incessantly upon gangs. And then you can definitely see this becomes a motivation for the buildup of prisons. So that when, when you have the late 19 or mid 1970s, late 1970s, when this boom, you have a ready-made system that already identifies the problem uh, to, to create safety, quote unquote, uh, for residents in the state which are all these sort of like rogue black people who are mobbing around and attacking everybody, you know, and that's just clearly not the case. Like that's not what's going on. A quick look of the history, you can see that the exact opposite is happening, which is that black people are the ones who are being attacked in a multifaceted ways, both by the state, private capital, just sort of all over the place. There's been a abandonment of the social infrastructure. And in fact, these organizations are the ones who are there literally sort of picking up the pieces to assist and provide some sort of a safety net for Black people. So the irony is that as uh, Black organizations are being labeled in this way, and this, you know, this was the same case with radical Black organizations such as, uh, as, as the Panthers and, and several others, their intent and focus is on keeping Black people alive while the perpetuators of violence are actually the ones labeling these groups as the direct opposite. As you just mentioned, I'm now seeing the parallels between Brim and like uh, the Bloods and those organizations being labeled as criminals, but they're actually doing work that the police aren't doing. And then the Black Panthers trying to bring resources and services to Black people in the neighborhood, and they're also being labeled as criminals and like gangs and like very violent, dangerous for the community. And that's a big part of it, you know, the, the way that Marley was able to explain to me his understanding of, of Brim and the power of Brim was just that, was that the, there was this connection, which is that the, the state under um, uh, the, the FBI in particular, like one of their primary motivations was to stamp out Black radicalism and Black radical organizations across the whole country. So by the time that you have the formation of like, you know, Brims and the formation of the Crips uh, as well, you, you, you already have a social and cultural milieu where the state is rapidly attempting to stymie slash neutralize Black movements for organizing against forms of, of violence, right? Um, 
but that history is not lost at all. You know, it, it's not as if pe black people just all disappeared. Um, and so when this organizing takes up again with black youth, it's in that same spirit. The overlap is not necessarily there historically in terms of time-wise uh, because of like the state's intense pressure upon those black organizations. But as they reform in the late 70s, early 80s, it's definitely like that spirit and ethos is all there because those people who were involved in these organizations are still all around. That, that becomes part of a major sort of differentiation of how Marley and his peers understood the primary threat to their lives was not necessarily the physical um, uh, violence enacted by policing, such as uh, being killed by the police or being murdered by the police formally in, 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 in that physical area, but they definitely understood <clears throat> that the expansion of the carceral state itself um, led to uh, a situation where premature death exploded because all of these resources, state resources, social resources were going to the carceral state apparatus at the expense of life saving and life preserving modalities that would have allowed black people to live. So, you know, it's the, the rates of death within the black community in LA are around things that are highly preventable, you know, such hypertension, diabetes, COVID has sh shot up now in the past three years. Much of when we think about the, the carceral state, we don't necessarily think about what Black life is and how to keep Black life sustained, but this was a primary focus and drive for Marley. So then thus, you can see that the intimate connection to groups like the Panthers, which is, as you said, Malcolm, those resources that were being brought in, like at the forefront of for them, it's like, how do we get food brought in? How do we get uh, forms of housing brought in? Because this, in fact, is what is going to make life possible for people in the um, neighborhood. And there was a recognition that the expansion of the carceral state directly stopped like that, was making that type of organizing extremely difficult and extremely hard uh, to do. So with what you just said, and I, and I even wrote it down and I'm forgetting where I wrote it down on this paper. Oh, how to keep black people, how to keep black life sustained on yeah. the other side of this paper. <laughs> I wrote that down because that was what I noticed even before I reached the halfway point of the book. You were discussing the carceral state without really talking about incarceration itself. Pointing to all of all of the things that lead to a carceral state, all of the things that the state does to like build that for people of color, working class communities. It wasn't just about how Black people are in jail and all the, the crimes that Black people commit and what leads them to make those decisions and those choices. And so was that like a deliberate choice that you made or, or was that something that you, were you thinking about the carceral state as you were writing the entire time, but just decided not to put it so front and center? And I think when we get to the last chapter, we get a slice of that. Yeah, so that's a great question. And actually, it was something that Marley told me just straight up. We were riding together, as we often did, in the car. And I was describing to him how a lot of people in academia write about Black life sort of always being close to death, right? And and um, so we, we were having this conversation about that, right? Because it's an it's a odd paradigm in which uh, I think it's just the, 
the culture of these fields of study and how the canon has been formed which is to write about black life in certain situations, i.e. In, in urban settings, quote unquote, is that you have to write about black life being on the brink of despair, black life being almost like on a borderline of completely falling off and you need some sort of savior to come in and save the day to help to expose everything that's going on, right? Um, and that death is always just around the corner. And one of the things that Marley you know, told me straight up, he was like, look, we're not focused on death. He's like, we're focused on how to, like, trying to live. Like, that is our goal in everything that we do. And that, that stuck with me from that point forward. And that was over a decade ago at this point. But it, it has very much resonated with me as I have any discussions or talk about the book or even just talk about Black organizing as well, which is that so much of the focus is on Black life. I, I mentioned in a book, to me, that became one of the main reasons why organizations, as they formed, just like the LA chapter of Black Lives Matter, didn't resonate as much with the work that Marley and his peers were doing, was because so much of it was focused on like these bullets, which are magnetized, as Andrew Davis said, to Black bodies at the hands of the cops. That became an, in this intimate connection between Black death and the police in a very particular type way um, just wasn't the lived experience for Marley and the members of Brim, but importantly for other members of the community around the library as well. It became important for me to really keep true to that narrative and that story that was told to me again and again about how to sustain Black life and how Black life should be made legible in a way that was absent of the proximity to death. And how do you do that though, in a way in which it's clear that the state is trying to kill black people, right? So it's, it's a tension that's there. And one of the ways in, in which I resolve that tension is to understand that these movements towards black life create a reactionary posturing upon the state to then try to stamp that out. And so if you place the emphasis upon these movements of Black life, then you can then minimize this sort of death is around the corner angle, which gives the state even more power. And from, from my read of it, the people actually who had their finger to the, the ground were the ones who very much should be highlighted and made prime characters in the story. I think that's, that's maybe a good time to take us to chapter five or album five, excuse me. Um, I started reading this chapter and, and then I had to start again. And I was like, oh, okay, I see what's what's happening. I really liked what you did here. And I, I wanted to ask you about like decisions you made in writing this chapter. And so returning to the earlier question when I asked you about your process of ethnography, can you read a bit from us from chapter, from album five, uh, maybe on the bottom of page 178? Being a camp? From yes. Yeah. Okay. Being in camp opened my eyes to so much about myself. Now, I'm not saying that I needed to be in camp to learn this. Let's get that straight. I get tired of that bullshit ass idea. You hear that all the time. Quote, if I didn't go to prison, then I would have wound up dead, close quote. Like, really, come on. That is the lamest thing I've ever heard. How about if you would have had a million dollars or if you had been born in Beverly Hills, like you were predestined to go to prison or something. Come on, you have to be kidding me. That shit ain't real. Going to prison did not save your ass. 
what saved your ass was being able to have a space and freedom to think, which ironically happens when you're locked up. And that is exactly what you don't have when you're trying to think of how to survive. You're trying to figure out how to get that next meal or where, you, where you're going to be living. You don't have time to think. When you are hungry, broke, and are in bad physical shape, that is going to mess with your mind. You ain't thinking straight. You're on edge and you just might snap at the smallest thing that ain't got nothing to do with nothing. Trust me, that has happened to me more than once. All it does is make a bad situation worse. So you can miss me with that whole madness that you as an individual made a bad decision. Shit, then what in the hell do you call that decision to put me and all of my family and friends in the situation that we are in? Who decided to pull all the jobs out of South Central? Who decided to close all the hospitals and healthcare facilities? Who decided to set it up so that police hunt us down? Who did all that? Why aren't they in prison? I'll tell you why, because prison was never made for them. Prison was never made for those who make the system function as it should. Prison was designed for the folks who call out the system or make it look like exactly what it is, a damn joke. Thank you. I'm gonna let you talk about what's going on here. So if you could talk about what is chapter five and your process for writing that and then, okay, this is a large question, I'm sorry. So you, yeah. if you can exp explain what the camp is as well, and then just talk about the ethical decisions that you considered and you explain a little bit about this in the intro to the chapter, but when you decided to write as Marley. Okay, so chapter five is Marley's words of him going to camp. These were taken over several conversations that we had and pieced together, right? And what camp is, is that uh, at that time, it's changed slightly since then. But at that time, there were essentially three layers of juvenile justice, uh, the former system of juvenile justice, which is that you could be sent to camps where Marley was sent to. And these camps were located in, in isolated, somewhat rural areas. When I say rural, for Southern California rural, that's either like up in the mountains or located out in the desert, probably somewhere between hour and a half to two hours away from the city of LA. The whole idea behind the camps was to teach like work ethic and to be with nature. There's a whole history behind these camps. But the irony, of course, is that you're sort of forced to be, it's prison, right? It's prison in a very beautiful place, which is very ironic. To me, as Marley was describing what camp was, I, I just got the sense of how Du Bois described plantations in the U.S. South, which is that you have this very sort of lush, beautiful, scenic location. And in the middle of this is like these horrific structures. Okay, so you have camps, then you have juvenile halls, which were, for lack of a better word, like they're just prisons for youth. And as Marley explained to me, like that was sort of like the worst place because of, of how it was organized and the types of violence that would happen because of how it was organized by the state. Um, and then you had these other sort of facilities that housed uh, youth, which were intended to be transition sites between like going to school and being locked up. So like these three tiers. Um, and then that's set aside from the fact that many youth at this time are being charged as adults. So they're bypassing all of these systems and being sent either straight to LA County Jail or adult prison. So in this case, telling the story of Marley as he's being sent to camp. We start off as he's leaving on a bus going from near downtown LA and making his way through the freeways of LA into the mountains. 
which are right around the outlining areas of the city. And what becomes quite evident to Marley as he's locked up is that all of these people who are around him are all in the same situation that he's in. And the irony of ironies is that as he's able to think clearly, is in this situation where he's like sort of surveilled 24 seven, but in the way in which he's able to think clearly because all of his needs are being met, right? Like he's getting food, he's getting shelter. He doesn't necessarily have to stress about those things. And it's allowing him to see things with a different perspective. And he's calling that out as well. And he's saying that, you know, oftentimes people say like, oh, you know, I went to prison and I was able to see the error in my ways because, you know, I need to go to prison. That's a common rhetoric that you, you know, would have heard. And his feedback is like, that's all a joke, right? The reason why you were able to think clearly was because you weren't stressed out all the time, right? Like about how you want to make it the, the next day. Um, so that's that's a one aspect, right? Another aspect of that chapter is Marley's also seeing very clearly like what needed to be done to organize based upon his experience of engaging with other people who are in the exact same situation. So as, as he said, like people who he may have had beef with on the outside, right, outside of camp, for one reason or another, all of a sudden, they're talking to each other. And then that changes the, the dynamics for him tremendously. And this was reminiscent of what happened during the 92 gang truce as well, is that when you had collectives from the Bloods and the Crips come together and realize that having that opportunity to like sit down and talk things out together, then formed a particular sort of form of energy that became intensely focused against the state. And that became a major threat. And Marley recognized all this because he, he had read at that point, we had gone through the archive from the 92 gang truce, right? So all of this was, was resonating to him and he understood what was at stake. And with the major players of that time, I think oftentimes when we think about people who are incarcerated and what happens during their time of incarceration, it very much follows into particular sort of like tropes. And often those tropes fall back on individual sort of like culpability because you have to, right? Like that's what gets band-aided. Like you need to take responsibility for your actions. And Marley's story was just completely absent of that. He was like, that's not even important to me. He had recognized that that was a sort of like a sham early on. He understood that accountability was important, but for him being accountable was much more to the people who were in his life and who he loved and who loved him back. And that was his family, his friends, and the people in his community. I think that answered all your questions for that. Um, I was asking you to talk about the ethical decisions or the ethics that you were considering when writing as Marley for this last chapter. First, when I wrote the chapter, I had like me talking to him and asking him questions. And it was just sort of like long paragraphs of his response there. And I was like, you know what? My voice is just getting in the way of this. Let me just take myself out of this and then just insert him in there right and so he and I talked about it as well and discussed it and he was he was like yeah you know I mean he's pretty laid back about these things uh, anyway but I want you know I just wanted to make sure that I represented him in a way that he felt like was him and not like a, a caricature of him I think you know I think it's impactful to hear a particular type of understanding of what being incarcerated is outside of those common tropes that we get. And my interest was not about guilt or innocence or things of that nature, right? But was about 
what happens when one is incarcerated and how the, the sort of ontological switch that takes place. And it took place for Marley in a profound way. From that experience, he understood the state completely differently and probably ways that the state did not intend to happen either, right? With common depictions of prison, we get the sense that the state is this omniscient character that dictates what, what happens with all of Black life, right? And in just this one little instance, it became very abundant to me that, oh, they messed up, right? Like they, they completely messed up and not just with Marley, but with a whole bunch of other uh, Black youth. By sending them to these places, it actually peels back the layer of the intent and function of the state in ways that actually they're not trying to do. Yeah, thank you. So I feel like we could go on and on. <laughs> I always say that partially because this is such a conversational book. But I think one way to close, I want to ask you two questions. And the first one is, what's one takeaway that you want readers to leave with after reading the book? Okay, one takeaway is um, that prisons themselves are much more than just the physical manifestations of prison walls, jail walls. We have to begin to understand that the logic of prisons is a very antithetical one to actually living for anybody at all. Um, and that a key way of doing that is to center organizing efforts that place Black life as the prime directive. And thus you would get solutions to then live in a society that's much more just, much more humane, and much more free. And the final question is, what's something that you took away from the process of researching and writing this book? Ooh, I took away so many things, <laughs> Malcolm, and still <laughs> am taking away things. I still, you know, I talk with Marley. I have a great relationship with the Southern California Library. Um, I think for me is the importance of Black study more than anything else, because for me personally, it became readily apparent that Black organizations from the 1960s, 70s, 80s, 90s, what they really placed the primacy on was study. Like study was of the utmost importance. Um, I remember having the opportunity to work with Michael Zinzin, who was the co-founder of Coalition Against Police Abuse and was a member of the LA chapter of the Black Panther Party. And for, you know, he said it over and over again. He's like, you, you have to study, like you have to read, you have to be intentional about what it is that you're doing. You have to think through it as strategy. And that takes time and energy. And it's not, it doesn't look glitzy. Like it, it, I don't know how you put it in a social media post, right? Like it's, it's, um, it's something that we sort of just take for granted or don't even think about at all. Um, and definitely it's very difficult to get funding to do because it's not, you know, like, can you give me a million dollars just so I can read with comrades, right? It's like, no, that's not going to happen, right? But that's that to me, it became obvious is one of the critical aspects of how movement building and organizing actually take place within Black communities. And that was something that was also very important for the Southern California Library as they were forming their workshops as well, was that just the time energy that was needed uh, to make that happen. Okay, see, now just from that one answer, I have a whole other conversation <laughs> that I want to have now about Black study. I'm taking my own notes. Um, we're going to have to return to that maybe a part two. 
Damon, thank you so much for being here with us and being generous with your time and, and talking us through this book. Definitely tell Marley, I feel like he has a book in him, R5. <laughs> so tell him when he's ready to publish, we'll have him on the show. All right, for sure, I definitely will. <laughs> thank you so much. All right, take care. Thank you, Malcolm. This episode of Works of Justice was produced by Malcolm Tariq. Music used throughout this episode was created by B.L. Sherrell and Fury Young of Die Jim Crow Records, the nation's first nonprofit record label for formerly and currently incarcerated artists. Members of PEN America's prison and justice writing team include Jess Abalafia, program assistant. Valentina Flores, prison and justice writing, postgrad fellow. Nicole Shawan Jr., Deputy Director, Prison and Justice Writing. Moira Marquis, Senior Manager, Free Write Project. Kate Meissner, Director of Prison and Justice Writing. Robert Pollack, Prison Writing Program Manager. Malcolm Tariq, Senior Manager, Editorial Projects. You can subscribe to and hear previous episodes of Works of Justice on any podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. To learn more about PEN America's prison and justice writing, please visit pen.org slash works of justice. That's P-E-N dot org slash works of justice. Mm-hmm.